All right, let's turn over to 2 Corinthians now. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We were sort of moving towards the end of it last week, and I went long, and I really didn't tie it up very well, but I'll try to close the loop a little bit, and then we'll move into, and, and Lord willing, cover chapter 2. Here in this last section in chapter 1, Paul was basically, there's a lot of good stuff in here, but what he was doing was explaining why he hadn't come to Corinth um, when he had said that it was his intention to come to Corinth first before then heading north up to Macedonia and then coming back to Corinth a second time. And there were people who were there in Corinth who were accusing Paul of going back on his word, accusing him of saying he was going to do something that he didn't do. Oh, you can't trust Paul. And one thing you learn from Paul in watching his life, he always wanted to be sensitive to the Spirit, and we need to be too. And sometimes that means that you might say that you're going to do something, but then you hear from the Lord that, no, that's not what you're supposed to do, and now there's a real test because your pride is on the line. Am I going to stubbornly stick with what I said or am I going to listen to the Lord and what he is telling me to do right now? And part of it has to do with just the humility to recognize that we don't know everything. And so the scriptures have a lot to say. Jesus talked about this over in Matthew. James talks about it as well, about not being presumptuous. Just basically everything that you do should be if the Lord wills. But if you get yourself into a thing where you, you know, had committed to do it, you have a higher commitment, and that is a commitment to the Lord. Now, it's never to be flaky. It's never to be just, you know, going back on a, you know, commitment just because you decide it's too difficult or you don't want to do it. But everything that we say or do needs to be with the caveat that, I'm going to listen to God, and ultimately I'm going to do what he says, not even what I've necessarily said. And so Paul, in explaining this, and we'll go down through it again, um, in verse 15 he says, and in this confidence I intended to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit, to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Paul was in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, and it, you could come across the sea to the southern tip of Greece, which is where Corinth and Athens are. You could go there and then head up to Macedonia, which was north, and that was originally what he was going to do. So he said, I intended to, to go that route. And, but he says in verse 17, uh, therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? He goes, no, I, I, I was serious about it. The things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? And the idea there is, in the flesh, should I just do it just because I said I'm going to do it? So I said yes, now it's yes, no matter what. A lot of people get into a lot of jams by committing to things that they shouldn't commit to. And we should never commit lightly, but at the same time, Paul said, 
I want to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. So I'm not going to just go, it's yes because I said yes. That's really just making, uh, you know. Now, if there's a way that you can keep your commitments, of course, that's a good thing. But if the Lord is really showing you that you need to take a different approach, we need to keep a light touch on it. And that's what he's saying. He says, verse 18, but as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. He said, I would never say yes and mean no. I would never tell you I'm going to do it, but really have no intention of doing it or, you know, no, that's not what I'm doing. And then he goes on to say, God's the one that you can always trust because he knows the future. So he says, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, by Silas or Silvanus, by Timothy, it was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen, to the glory of God through us. And so he said, God's word is absolutely dependable. The problem is, we don't always know what his word is. And so his word is perfect, but our understanding of it is flawed, is the idea. So if you want something that you can totally count on, listen to what God says. And obviously, this is why Paul is saying that he teaches the word of God, because that's, that's what can be trusted in. Now he says, um, all the promises of God are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has seated us, sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. So he says, we have God's word and we have his spirit. And his spirit works in us and, and leads us and guides us. And he says, by that spirit, I'm telling you, I wasn't just trying to make it easy. And I'm not making excuses now. It's just that as I sought the Lord, I realized that it would be better for you. I, I changed my plans in order to spare you something. And as we read on, we kind of see you know, what the sparing thing is. But to spare you, I came no more to Corinth at that point. He would end up going to Corinth. Um, but he says, not that we have dominion over your faith. You know, it's not that you can't you know, receive from anybody else, and therefore I'm the king and you need to hear from me. We're fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. In other words, if I'm not there, you still have your faith. You'll be okay. I knew that you weren't absolutely dependent on me, and that's why I knew it would be okay if I didn't come when I had originally intended to come. But, verse 1 of chapter 2, I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. And so Paul's saying, basically, 
I, if I had come at that time, it wouldn't have been pretty. God wasn't leading me to be there, and there was a really good reason, because I didn't know how you had responded to my first letter, 1 Corinthians. And I had to really chew you out in the book of 1 Corinthians. And if I had come and found out that things hadn't been made good, now we know from later in the book, instead he, Timothy went there and Titus went there, and Paul was really anxious to hear from them what was going on in Corinth because he just knew he wasn't the best person to go and deal with them because he didn't know what he was going to find when he got there. And so what Paul is saying is, believe me, you didn't want me to come there at that time. I didn't know what was going on, and heads would have rolled. And I want to come there to make you happy, and when you're happy, I'm happy. But if I came there and I had to talk stern with you after the way that I had already spoken to you from the letter of 1 Corinthians, then I would have been bummed and you would have been bummed. And it's an interesting principle here that's so important for us to get, and it's something that I think is often lacking in the church today. And you go back to the earlier discussion in chapter 1, and you see this principle that everyone is to be involved, and everyone has a part in ministry. And Paul just harps on this all the time. He didn't want to build a hierarchical system whereby it all came down to him. Now, there were times when he, as the authority in the church, needed to tell them, as had happened in 1 Corinthians in some cases, that he needed to kind of lower the boom on them because they weren't getting it themselves. But Paul did not want them to become dependent on him. And he also knew that sometimes he was the perfect person to minister to someone, but that other times someone else was the best person to deal with them. And we create real problems when we assume that, you know, there are only certain people who can minister to us, or there are certain people that are my go-to person. And I talked about this a little bit um, last week, but so often in the church we become really um, inbred where we continue to habitually go to the same people and burden them with our same problems. And there are only certain designated people in the church who are supposed to be the dispensaries of everyone's agony and everyone's problems. And what happens when you do that is, for one thing, like, let's face it, if you talk to me about your problems, I'm more than happy to listen to it. I, you know, I love to be able to be there for someone when they're going through a tough time. But if you've talked to me about it a couple times, I've probably already told you the best stuff I can give you. I've probably given you the best wisdom that I possess, the best experience that I possess. If you keep talking to me, one of two things are going to happen. Either I'm going to get sick of hearing from you, and I'm just going to zone out, or even more dangerous than that, I'm going to have to start making up stuff to help you because <laughs> what I told you before didn't really help. And 
I'm not playing down the aspect of fellowship, but I'm talking here about spiritual leadership and guidance and counsel, which is what Paul's talking about. And I just think it's, and again, as I said last week, and it may seem off the subject, but it was something that as I was praying about this passage, the Lord really convicted me of, that often we become closed off to getting involved with new people, to making different friends, to and even as a church, one of the one of the um, things that's very typical in church is that people become good friends, and then you form cliques. And when someone comes from the outside, at first they go, "Wow, what a friendly church!" But then after a little while, they realize, "Well, they're all friendly with each other." but they're not really friendly with me. There's not a place for me to plug in. There's not a way for me to get involved. I feel like it's an old boys network that I can't really push my way into or it takes a long time in order to break through this crust of people who have been here for a long time. And you've all been in the situation where you're with someone and they like know each other really well and you don't know them and they have all these... Um, inside jokes and they like they always want to talk about oh yeah remember 10 years ago when this and this and you're like well i've only been here for three days so i don't know what you're talking about but they are so amusing to themselves of all their old great stories and they all know the same people and they do and and sometimes we pass that off as this is what fellowship is but the truth is fellowship is always designed to bring new people in, to not just have the same people doing the same stuff, the same jobs and the same, but it's all about keeping a constant fresh flow moving through. And that's one of the reasons why Paul, I believe, traveled so much, because he's the type of guy who very easily could have become the guru of a town, and then everybody everybody would have been coming to him. The body is created so that everyone can be a part of it and everyone can be involved. And Paul here, though certainly he had the greatest amount of knowledge and you could make a case for, he was the perfect person to come to Corinth and straighten this out. For Paul, he had said all he knew to say. And now he was afraid that if they forced the issue, that it would get ugly for everyone. I've seen that happen a lot of times. And so it's so important that we remain open to listening to different people's input and praying with different people and not just falling into a rut where every time we come to church, we see the same people, talk to the same people. Do And, you know, as I said last week, um, the people who really know you have heard all your stuff. And you're really not that interesting to them when you keep... And I, if you go to a church too long, I mean, you've heard me tell some of the same stories a bunch of times, and you're like, Dave, I, yeah, we know. And I, with senility that comes from old age, sometimes you don't realize you're telling the same story again. But at some point, it's like, you know, there's, there are new people every week at church who haven't heard your stories, who haven't heard your favorite jokes, who haven't seen your pride and joy, Ken. Or, you know, and it's like, we're, we ought to be glad when we find a new audience. And also, there are new people who are coming all the time who have wisdom 
and who have perspective and understanding and experience. And so it's so important that we embrace the entire body and every part of it that God brings along rather than to fall into a rut of predictability in terms of here's, how, here's who I always go to, here's how I always deal with it. Um, life not only becomes boring, but we can drag each other down if we're not careful. We can become a burden to other people and they to us and, and that's what Paul. That's exactly what Paul is saying. I didn't want to come there and just say what I've already said and find out that you're still going through what you were going through. So he wanted some other people to take a shot at it and ministering to these people. And that's kind of his point here that, no, I, I realized that I'd be doing you a favor if I didn't come and see you right now. And how many of us are really open to that? How many of us are open to the Spirit enough that sometimes we just go, you know what, I feel like I ought to talk to this person, but I don't really feel led right now. And sometimes when I talk to them, it doesn't go very well. Is it okay with us to just go, I don't owe anybody anything. The only one I owe is God, to listen to him and do what he tells me to do. I can't tell you how many times I talk to people who feel obligated to someone. And as soon as you're feeling obligated, you're probably just not listening to the Lord. And he's probably telling you, you don't need to feel that way. You don't, you, you don't every one of your relatives, it's not your responsibility to get them saved. Everybody that you know, people who are annoying to you, it's not, when they get annoying to you, maybe that's not the person for you to be ministering to right now. And it's this is hard to accept, but I know sometimes we absolutely minister with good intentions, but totally in the flesh. And it just doesn't work because we make assumptions about what we're supposed to be doing instead of listening to the Lord and being okay if he wants to use other people to do the kinds of things that we're just feeling burden to do and a lot of times another person is better to do it than you are in a given situation i'm thankful for you know the different people over the years that god brought into our lives to minister to our kids besides me now there's no one in the world i would rather minister to than one of my kids and i would do anything for them but sometimes I wasn't the best person to. And sometimes when I tried to talk to my kids, I didn't do it right because I was uptight or, or anxious or for whatever reason. And God brought other people along who were able to minister to them in such a beautiful way. And we need to be okay with that. We need to be okay with letting God be God. That's kind of Paul's point. It's like, Hey, I'm flowing with what he leads me to do. And it didn't seem like a good idea, so I'm thinking the Spirit didn't want me to do it. Don't lay a guilt trip on me and attack me because I didn't do the ministry that you wanted me to do. Stop loading me down. Stop pushing. That's not God. Anything that's from compulsion, anything that's from, I hate to do this, but I need to, um, that's not God. Unless it's something that he specifically addresses in his word. Like, if you don't feel like going home at night, I'm not suggesting that you just bail, okay? But, but 
for the most part, when it comes to ministry, if we would just listen to God and only do what he tells us to do, it would be so much easier. And, and, and the truth is, we wouldn't foul things up so much and, and talk to people and have it end with, it went terrible, there's no understanding between us. But so often we just push to make things happen. And I love that Paul didn't do that, even though he knew that people were calling him a flake. You know, he was willing to be called a flake rather than to go and do something just because people wanted him to do it. People-pleasing is a horrible disease. And call it what it is, it is your flesh. It is my flesh. Whenever we do something that is not a matter of conviction, but it's simply a matter of expedience or obligation or burden. And a lot of times we do it, we really mean well, but we're not recognizing what it is to walk in the Spirit. And so we drag our feet, and God tells us clearly what we're supposed to do, but, oh man, I don't know, I just can't do that. And, oh, what peace we often forfeit when, when we just insist on doing it our way because we're afraid of what's going to happen. We're afraid of what somebody's going to say. And Paul just was setting the example for these guys. I just listen to the Spirit. I do what he wants me to do. And I'm telling you, I'm assuring you, I wasn't just trying to weasel out of it, but the Spirit was letting me know that this just, I'm not the best person to talk to you guys right now. And maybe there's somebody else who, who would be better and be open to that. So now he starts to, uh, he said, verse 4, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you. He goes, that wasn't easy. I wasn't just getting it off my chest and blasting you guys in 1 Corinthians. It was hard. And sometimes you don't realize how hard it is for someone to do something that God told them to do. But he said, with many tears, not that you should be grieved, I wasn't trying to bum you out, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. I love you enough that I wanted to tell you the truth. I love you enough that I wanted to give you the information that nobody else would give you because they don't want to offend you, but I love you enough that I'm willing to offend you so that I could tell you the truth. And if you're really someone's friend, you tell them the truth, even if even if everyone else is going to go, no, I don't think that way, when they all know it is that way. They just don't want to say it. And he goes, I'm telling you, no, I was coming from love. And he says, but if anyone has caused grief, he hasn't grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. He says, I don't want you feeling sorry for me. Because what was hard for me was seeing what you're doing to yourself. Seeing the way you guys are messing up your lives, messing up the church, messing up the witness, that was what I was bummed about. I don't have anything personally at stake. I wasn't thinking that people are going to say, wow, look at that church in Corinth. You know, Paul sure did create a problem there. He said, no, it wasn't about me at all. I, you were hurting yourselves. And I, and I really wanted to see that stop. I really wanted you to be in a place where where God wanted you to be. And, 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 I, and I don't want it to be too severe. Now, he starts talking about this case, which is most likely, most 
scholars believe that he's referring to the case in 1 Corinthians, which was one of the toughest one of the toughest things that he had to talk to them about. Turn for a moment back to 1 Corinthians 5. It's been a while since we were in 1 Corinthians, so I'll refresh your memory. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. He goes, I can't even believe this. It's the kind of stuff they're not even doing in the world, but some guy is involved physically with his dad's wife. Now, that could be his mother, but probably his stepmother, um, because he didn't say with his mother, but with his father's wife, although either one is permissible by the language. And, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. He said, you guys are proud that you're accepting this behavior. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that is, kick him out and let him do what he's going to do, and even if it kills him, don't let him be there in front of you while he does it, in order that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. His soul is more important than even his body. So even if it just destroys him to be put out of the church, and in those days, the church was the place of survival for them in a lot of cases, but he goes, man, it's more important that he be saved. And, and, so, uh, and, and then he says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, don't you realize that having permitted something like this it affects everybody it poisons everyone who's a part of the body therefore purge out the old leaven leaven is by the way a, generally a symbol for sin in the bible so purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened um, an image from the old testament the unleavened bread spoke of being pure um, and, and so he's saying, that's you. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then he goes on to say, of course, if there's immoral people who are outside the church, yeah, you need to go talk to, you need to be friends with them. If, if somebody's living this kind of a lifestyle and they don't know the Lord, then yeah, you should, you should want to be hanging around them. But if somebody's going to be calling themselves a Christian, being a part of the church, and they're living this way, you need to deal with that. Because if they're led to believe that they can be a Christian and still live this way, then that could cost them their eternity. So very severe warnings for this. And and so, as it turns out, 
that um, they took it seriously, and they did. They booted the guy out. But now here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is saying, okay, that was good, but it's enough. Okay, the guy's suffered enough. It's time to restore him. And biblically always, discipline is for the purpose of restoration. Kicking someone out of the church was always with the mind that it would help them to repent and then hopefully end up on track. And any kind of discipline, the goal is to bring about a change in a person. It's not just to punish people for what they're doing, whether you're disciplining children or whether you're in a position of leadership over adults. um, It's the same thing. The idea is, what can I do that's going to help this person get on track and, and lead a productive and fruitful life? And so that's all he wanted from them in this respect. So in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, it's time to shift gears, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Paul wasn't being cold-hearted. No doubt people were accusing him of that. Oh, he was just being mean to this guy. Boy, look at what's happening. No, he wanted to make sure that the example was set to everyone And he wanted to make sure that this guy really got the message. And sometimes you find yourselves in a situation where somebody has really messed up and sinned, and you find yourself in a a spot of, you know, should I keep a friendship with this person, or is this something that God wants me to sort of cut off some fellowship with them? And you really have to seek the Lord. There isn't any hard and fast rule in Scripture about it. Um, but if God leads you to cut somebody off from your fellowship, it's really important that your goal is then to pray for them and to watch for signs of repentance, to watch for evidence that they really get it, that they've really changed, so that then you can incorporate them back and reaffirm your love for them and, and include them again. Sometimes someone has failed in a way and and maybe they've totally repented, but everyone still treats them like they're a pariah, like, like they've committed the unpardonable sin, and I don't ever want to have anything to do with you. Sometimes you may disagree with someone getting a divorce, for instance, and it has that stigma attached, and because your understanding of, of biblical divorce is that, oh, that, that was wrong for them to do it, uh, is the purpose for treating them a certain way to bring about change in their life, what are you really looking to happen? And that's what you have to discern in in every situation. Now, if it's over, it's over. And a lot of times it's just wise to to figure, you know, hey, this person needs my support. Sometimes you know someone who marries the absolute wrong person. And you know it's going to be terrible and they invite you to their wedding and you feel like, man, they're going to marry this loser and I feel, you know, it's a horrible thing and I don't, I have people all the time, you know, even one of their kids is getting married 
and they're wondering whether they should go or not because they're marrying a non-Christian or they're marrying somebody that they think is abusive or they're marrying, you know, first of all, I don't care who they're marrying. Um, if you have shared your heart with them, told them your concerns, um, you've pretty much done what you can do. Now, the question is, if they're going to do it anyway, are they better off having you to support them? Or do you want them just completely cut off to where you know, you've lost that kind of a relationship with them? And sometimes we just have to suck it up. And sometimes even to support someone, go to a wedding that you think, this thing doesn't have a chance. But I want to be supportive of, of this person. Now, if you said, you know what, I'm not going to go to your wedding because I don't like your fiancé, and that would cause them not to get married, okay, maybe play that card. But, you know, if they're going to do it anyway, um, you have to think in terms of, is my ultimate goal to be there to support a person, to restore them when necessary? I had a, I had a situation once where I did a, I used to just, I would never marry people unless I really felt good about their marriage. And there are still times when I turn down people for, for a marriage because if, if I just feel so bad about it, I'll, usually what I'll tell them is, you know, your, marriage, your wedding should be the happiest day of your life and you really deserve to have someone be there as the pastor who's really excited for you. And I'm just so worried for you that I think you can do better than to have me do the wedding. Um, and that's happened. But for the most part, I used to be really hard-nosed. <laughs> and some of the people that I was certain couldn't miss, I mean, these people, I know they're going to be married 50 years from now. A year later, they're divorced. And I'm like, I felt like, did I miss something here? But I'm not clairvoyant, you know? But the one that really taught me was many years ago, a friend of mine called me and asked me, she goes, I have a big favor to ask you. My niece is getting married like in two days. And they have hundreds of people coming. They have the El Adobe reserved. They, you know, and, but the pastor just backed out. And they're not Christians. They're living together. They have several kids. And I was like, you know, I was, you know, at that point, I was like, man, if I even found they're sleeping together at all, you know, I'm not marrying them. Today, that would save me a lot of weddings. But um, <laughs> I could probably get rid of my suit. But, um, you know, but I, I really felt like this is a compromise to do this. But this is a real good friend of mine who was asking me, and, oh, please, Dave, I, it would just mean so much. And, and I, I'm a people pleaser, and I knuckled under, and I said, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. And the whole time I was just, why am I doing this? And I, and those poor, the poor audience, because I just finally thought, man, that whole El Adobe restaurant's full of heathens, and I am going to let them have it. And I probably, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I probably preached hellfire and brimstone in the wedding just to like make them pay. And, but still for for 10 years after that, I felt like if there was one I could take back, it would be that one. Until on a Sunday morning, this couple came up to me and they said, introduced themselves and 
Remember me? I'm Mary's niece. And I go, you guys are still married? And they said, yeah, we came to your church because it's our 10th anniversary. And we just wanted to thank you for, you know, marrying us. And, I, and I'm like, okay, cool. Um, you know, and I'm thinking, so at least they went to church once in 10 years. That's a good thing. But they go, oh, by the way, you know, in the wedding, you shared all about the gospel and, and Jesus dying for our sins and everything. And they said, we went on our honeymoon, we went to our hotel room that first night, and we watched the video of the wedding. And we realized we had never given our hearts to Jesus Christ. So we knelt down by the bed, and we accepted Jesus, and that was 10 years ago. And now we're teaching Sunday school, we're involved. And I'm like, where have you been for 10 years? <laughs> I've felt miserable for nothing, you know? And, but boy, did that teach me a lesson about judging and about just, you know, it's not up to me. I'm not the guy that decides everything. Um, sometimes God's hand is there and works, and, but the heart always for every lost person should be, oh man, I just want you walking with the Lord. I want you loving him. I want to take every opportunity I can to demonstrate that love. And if you mess up, I, I want to help you to get back. I, I, I don't want you to go away so I don't have to think about it anymore. I really want to involve people and include people and restore people no matter what they've done. And that was definitely Paul's heart here. So he said, um, reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Kind of a weird verse. I mean, he already said that he's not, you know, the Lord over them. Um, you know, he doesn't have dominion over their faith. But he knew this would be difficult, and, and I guess what he was doing was saying, I wanted to see if you guys were even serious about the value of the church. Does it mean anything to you to do things right? And wow, what a, what a huge question that is for all of us, ultimately. And we find opportunities to take that test often. When God speaks to us, and now he's saying, I'm testing you in a way. Let me see what you do with this. Let me see if you're willing to be obedient. Because whether or not you're willing to be obedient shows whether or not you're really serious about following God, walking with him. This was a tough test for them. This was difficult because they hadn't wanted, maybe this family was prominent in the church or Maybe they knew this kid from when he grew up and everybody was attached to him, but for some reason, they just didn't want to deal with it. But Paul said, I, I kind of called you out on it because I really wanted to see if you guys are serious about your walk with the Lord, if you're serious about serving God, if you're serious about church and the church being what it's supposed to be. And so it's not that his approval meant anything. I think his point is, I, I, I really wanted to see if what you guys are made of. Again, not that he would put judgment on them, but that he would know if the ministry that he had done in Corinth 
had really borne fruit or not? You know, did I teach you well? Are you walking in obedience? And so he said, you know, that's why I did it. And now, he says, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. So now he's not going, you know, I better check this guy out. I need to interview him. I need to hear if he's really repentant. He goes, you know what? I trust you guys. If you, you did what was right, now if you want to forgive him, I forgive him. If you're okay with him, I'm okay with it. So different from sometimes when leaders in churches become so into their own power that they have to have the oversight and approval and veto power on every little thing that happens. Paul, Paul wasn't like that. When he knew that he needed to call them out and insist on a difficult decision being made, he did that. But now he's going, I trust you guys. And if you, if you think he's ready, if you, if you forgive him, then he's fine with me. He's, he's good in my book. I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. He gave him over to Satan, just like we saw in, uh, you know, that Paul talked to Timothy about Hymenaeus and Alexander. It's just an expression to say, just let him do what he's going to do. But you cut him off. You get... Get yourself out of it. Take yourself out of the situation. And so he was allowing that, but he said, there's another way Satan can get the victory. And that is if you don't make it possible for restoration. If you won't forgive someone if they've been genuinely repentant. Now, how do you know if someone's been repentant? It's not easy. It's not easy to tell. I was listening to... um, a study on Saturday, though, um, on K-Wave, and it was the pastor of Calvary Chapel Vista, uh, Robin Salvato, and he was talking about, it was a great message, the part I heard of it, and he was talking about repentance, and he said, you can tell that someone's really repentant when they've lost their self-esteem. He goes, so many times when people are in trouble, they're still worried about them, They're still worried about, okay, what's this going to do to me? How am I going to survive? How how do I feel? I feel so bad. I feel so awful. This is really ruining my life. But Rob said, but when they stop worrying about that and they just start going, repenting before God, taking responsibility for what they've done, not defending themselves, and really just wanting God to be glorified, and, and nothing more than that, then you know that someone's really repenting. And I thought that was an interesting point, and since then I've thought about it quite a bit, and, and I've thought of a lot of cases where um, that, was, that was spot on. That if someone, if it's still about you, and you probably haven't even come close to learning the lessons that you need to learn, when you're caring about others and how they're affected and, and really remorseful about how you've offended God, now you're kind of getting in the ballpark. And so, you know, Paul says, Satan can take advantage of us, and we aren't ignorant of his devices. Satan can win a victory in more ways than one. Sometimes his greatest victories are in how we respond to where 
someone gives in to Satan in the first place, either by us not forgiving or by us restoring too soon before someone's ready. And so he said, that's the thing. I just don't want Satan to get any more traction from this deal. Verse 12, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. So uh, Paul further explains, he was at Troas, which is on, it's in Asia Minor. And again, if you get in your mind, you have three basic lumps sticking down in the Mediterranean Sea. And the one on the far east is Asia Minor. The next one is Greece, the sort of boot-looking thing. And then the next one is Italy, which is really looks like a boot with a heel and all that. Um, Asia Minor on the northern part of the coast of Asia Minor is where Troas is. So he could have gone directly across to northern Greece, which is where Macedonia is, or he could have sailed south to uh, down there where Athens is and then go Athens to Corinth. And so he says, I was at Troas and I was still trying to make the call. You know, what should I do? He said, I wanted to talk to Titus because I knew Titus had been to Corinth and so I was going to base what I did based on what, what Titus had, had told me about. But... He wasn't there, and I was kind of stressed about it. And so I went ahead and went to Macedonia instead. And it's an interesting insight into sometimes how God leads also when we have decisions to make. And we talk sometimes about having a peace and things like that, but a lot of times when something, you don't have all the answers and it's just kind of stressful, then do what seems like the easiest, most logical, most peaceful thing to do, rather than to just, if you're thinking about doing something, but it just seems like it's not right, and there's something that stands in the way, and it seems like you're striving to do it, if God doesn't tell you anything else, then you don't have to go do that anyway. And Paul just is explaining to them, it just didn't feel right, and I hadn't seen Titus, so... I just, took the, I just went the easy way, the path of least resistance. Taking the path of least resistance when God has told you to do something difficult is cowardly and foolish. But taking the path of least resistance when God isn't telling you anything, that's just common sense. Don't always do what's difficult. I'm not hearing from God, so he must want me to do this horrible thing. No. I mean, just... If he isn't telling you specifically what you need to know, do whatever you want. Don't make it a, don't build it up like God always wants us to do the hard thing. If God wants you to do the hard thing, he'll tell you to do the hard thing. And if he doesn't tell you anything, guess what? You can do whatever you want. And you know what happens? That's the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't always tell us what to do. But the Holy Spirit is able to give us the desires of our heart and he is with us all the time. And so if you don't know what to do, just do what you want. Augustine said, love God and do anything you please. And you have to be careful with that. 
Because do you really love God? Are you really committed to him? But this is an example where Paul was just going, I was stressing over this, and I didn't get all the information I wanted, so just headed to Macedonia. That was, it was as simple as that. And yet he recognized that it was the Holy Spirit who was leading through that, um, through his reasoning. I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. If you don't have rest for your spirit, that's not a good time to make some major life-changing decision. You know, the, the big decisions are the ones that you want to know that you've heard from God. And if you haven't heard from God, take, take a break. Take some time off and really go and seek him because you want to be closer to God than you've ever been in your life when you're making decisions that could have huge ramifications. And there's a reason often why we don't have rest in our spirit, and we should take that seriously. Sometimes we may discover what the reason is. Maybe you just haven't had a good meal or enough sleep or something like that, but kind of eliminate the obvious things. Go have a slice of pizza and then and then see what God's showing you, you know. But Paul just, he, he's letting them in on all the, it's, it's almost like he, he goes, I don't want to leave anything out. I want you to know exactly how I came to the conclusion that it was better for me to go to Macedonia than to come to Corinth. So he says, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Oh, how we need to praise God that he always leads us, and it always works out. It always wins. Uh, again, it's that beauty of Romans eight twenty eight that we can't even mess it up so bad that God can't fix it and salvage it, and we win in the end. And so he's just going, I'm so thankful to God that he always gets his, brings his will about in our lives. If we're taking him seriously, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his service, um, we, we make the call, and it turns out to be God's call. The Spirit leads us. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for all the times the Spirit led me, and I didn't know the Spirit was leading me. I just thought I was doing something. And then I did it, and it worked out really well, and I was like, man, I'm so glad that the Spirit was leading me, even though I didn't know the Spirit was leading me. I've seen that sometimes where have a difficult decision to make and you know no one wants you to do it and they think it's a bad idea and then you do it and it works out really well and even a person who is bugged at you that you're not giving them what they want they end up discovering what God has for them is so much better and it wouldn't have happened unless that had happened and you go did I just feel like oh the spirit's telling me this no I just try to do what I thought was right and it turns out the Spirit is in those kinds of things. And so that's what Paul is sharing, and he was excited about it. And um, he says, and, he, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. There's this wonderful scent that God wants to communicate to people, and he does it through us, and that's amazing. Because we in ourselves just stink. We don't there's nothing, no, no beautiful fragrance about us. But God is able to work in such a way that we come out smelling like a rose. And 
you know, we don't know what we're doing half the time, but the Spirit leads, and then God's fragrance ends up being there. And you go, man, did you know something? Or did you, how did God reveal himself up? I was just thinking, I did what I thought I could do. The Spirit led, and now there's this beautiful result. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. They can smell Jesus in us. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. There are some people who hate us because they smell Jesus in us. You know, have you ever been around people who just can't stand you and you don't know why you're doing everything you can do to be nice to them, but it just doesn't seem to click or connect? Sometimes it's just because they smell Jesus on you and they don't want Jesus. They don't like him. They don't want a God who's going to tell them what to do. And so as a result, they're mad at you because you seem too much like him. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. I imagine most of us found Jesus when we smelled him on some of his followers. You know, when we were just around people and there was just a sense of something really special. Maybe it was your own family members or maybe it was somebody else, but it was just like, oh, that's, it feels so right being around this person. They're so pleasant. Some of us just stink and that's, and that's bad. He's going, but you have the opportunity if you, if you follow him and you do things with his spirit and in his way, people who are going to be saved are going to be drawn to you. People who are going to hell are going to be repelled by you. But you will bear that resemblance to the Savior. And he says, and who is sufficient for these things? We aren't. We, we can't do this. God just uses us. For we are not, as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. (laughs) We're not selling anything. We're not pitching anything. I think it's so important that we share Christ in a way that it doesn't sound like we're trying to get notches in our belt, you know, that we're just forcing it on people because we want to run back and say, yeah, I, I got 12 12 new ones tonight, you know, and I mean, that would, I'd be offended if I was a non-Christian and somebody acted like they cared about me, but really it was just that they wanted to bag me, you know, as one of their, you know, victories that they could share about, and it's like, and, and often people have all kinds of motives. Um, if you, obviously, when you look in the, in the Christian media, you get the distinct impression that Jesus is for sale in, in a whole lot of different ways. And Paul said, I'm not selling anything. I'm not peddling Jesus. I'm not sitting there hawking him like, at a, like a carnival barker. I'm just trying to live the way he's called me to live, and I hope that that smell gets picked up on and people are drawn to Jesus but I'm not shoving him down people's throats because that would be offensive not only to them but to him. So as of sincerity 
and as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Just basically telling people what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done. It's not our job to convince them. It's not our job to save them. It's our job to share with them and to live a life that reflects the fragrance of Christ. And um, so, good stuff. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to apply it. Help us to see the way that Paul seemed to have such a sense of your leading, and he shared honestly how, how it went down. Didn't act like he had some mysterious voice that he heard, but he just worked his way through the circumstances and, and did the best he could and acknowledged that it was you that did everything that was beneficial and worthwhile through him. I pray that you would help us to be so affected by you, by your character, by your fruit, that that would just shine forth. And I mean, we're a mess, but Lord, you are able to, we're not sufficient for this, and we stink, but you're able to take your fragrance and have it, have it rise above ours and allow people to see who you are through our frail attempts at serving you. And I thank you for that. That's glorious. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be the people you want us to be so that you could use us as instruments to let other people know that there's hope for them too. And Lord, help us as a body to not become about ourselves, to not be self-serving, selfish people, to not be turned in people, but help us to be always open and recognizing that our, our job is to represent you to those who don't know you. And our job as a fellowship is to reach out always to, to other people who we come in contact with because you bring them across our path. Help us to be open to that and to even insist on that because, God, we don't want to just be a little holy club here waiting for you to come back. We want to do everything that you have for us to do. We thank you. Lord, I thank you for everyone who chose to come out tonight. There's a lot of other stuff they could have done, but I pray that for each of us here, you would have some word in this study, in this passage, that was just for us that we needed to hear. And help these messages to, to go with us as we contemplate these truths and as throughout the rest of the week, Lord, you bring to our remembrance some of the elements from the study tonight from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night.